thank you for allowing Jennifer and I the freedom to go and just have a good vacation, just the two of us. We went to Scotland, and nothing went as planned, but that's okay, you know, um, as, as vacations often do. It's funny, we were planning to hike. Um, it was like close to 100 miles, this trail. That was, we had it all planned out, all this stuff. And then a couple, like second day, Jennifer got hurt, so we had to, you know. It's funny, we were like looking forward to it. We were like, we're going to hike all this. Like, we're going to lose 10 pounds. Um, but instead, I'm pretty sure we like gained 10 pounds. For five days, she couldn't really do much. We just sat around eating and going to coffee shops. And so, um, but it was still, a, it was a wonderful trip. Um, so, <clears throat> but I will say I uh, came back and got a cold. Um, can't shed the jet lag. So I'm like staying up all night, sleeping all day. It's weird. On top of that, then I... Um, Jennifer stayed in Texas for baby baptism for our, our new niece. And so I haven't seen my kids in two weeks. So like mentally, physically, spiritually, like I'm sort of a wreck. But the Lord is kind. And um, over the last couple of days, he's given me some good time to be able to study. And so, but it, it, it is good to be reminded that some weeks I sort of, my ego or like, oh yeah, like I'm the one who's doing all the work and I'm the one who's prepping and I'm, you know, and I forget. And so the Lord was really gracious to me and reminding me that I had nothing in me at all the last couple of days to sit and study and prepare, and the Lord brought things that um, hopefully I think will be a blessing to you as well. So um, I've got cold water, I've got hot water, I'm trying to, to stop the throat from hurting, so Lord's going to have to be with me this morning, I think. <coughs> all right, so we're going to be in Romans 7, um, the first six verses there, and I wanted to start by just... Um, pointing something out. So, you know, we homeschool our kids and we get a lot of people ask us questions, you know, like, why do you do that? What's, um, and there's a lot of reasons for doing it. But one of the main reasons is that I remember being in public school. So I don't know how all the public schools are, but I remember the school that I grew up in and going to school. And it was a lot of just, here's the information, here's, here's what to think. And I was really never taught how to think. And so I just was given a lot. Like, here's the, remember these dates, remember these people, remember this, remember that, remember that. Um, and I struggled with that. And it was only since I became an adult that I think I really learned, and with the help of my dad even as a kid, but just like learning how to think. And so one of the main reasons that we like to homeschool is because there are things like rhetoric and logic that are have no longer in the school system um, that I think are really, really important and wanting to teach my kids, you know, how to think, what to do, how to problem solve. Um, <clears throat> I, love, I love the show Cheers. I've seen every episode more times than I can count. And I just, you know, I, I, could, I, could, I know all the jokes before they say them, and I still laugh every time because it's great. But one of these episodes, um, you know, the heat goes out, and Sam, he takes a flashlight, and he, like, shines it down into the, in, into the ductwork. He's like, well, that's all I can do. And everybody's like, what? all you did was shine a light in it. And he, and he looks at the flashlight, and he's like, yeah, that usually works. Like, he's looking at the flashlight as if it's the problem. And, like, that's kind of the world I feel like we live in. It's like you turn a light switch on or you turn a faucet on, and it doesn't work. And we've lost the ability to think and figure out. Um, and so this is plaguing our culture. And so... What's really beautiful is that we don't actually have to turn to some of those great thinkers. Like, you don't have to go and read Plato's Republic in order to learn logic and rhetoric. You can actually just read the Bible. Um, and in fact, mainly if you read Paul. And that's what Paul gives us a master class. Not just in the book of Romans, but throughout all of his writings, he shows us how to build a logical argument. Argument. He, he comes in with a foundation and then he builds a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. He's been doing that the whole book of Romans, right? Romans is one 
logical progression. He, he continues to build on these ideas over and over. And then we have small sections where he does it kind of, and, and so that's what chapter 7 is. Um, many of you may think of like the, the part of the book of Romans that is argued the most is maybe Romans 9, but really Romans 7, 13 to the end is one of the most disputed and argued about passages in all of Romans for sure, and, sometimes, and, and really in, in, in a lot of the New Testament. And I think the problem is, is that people, they want to just sort of yank that part out and read it and try and understand it and try and argue about it without looking at the first part. And so what Paul does is he builds an argument, he builds a foundation and he builds it. And we can't just go and take parts of it or one verse here or this little section here and, and actually really be able to understand what he's saying. Um, and so what we're going to do is... When we get to the more controversial part in a couple of weeks, starting in verse 13, what we need to do is remember what we're going to talk about this week and next week. And where does he build the foundation? Who is he talking to? What is his audience? I mean, there's a lot of things that are really, really important in these first couple of verses so that we can later understand the verses that are more contentious. Um, so with that being said, let's start here in verse 1 and let's look and see what Paul has to say to us this morning. <clears throat> Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So we'll start there, right? That's his foundation. This is where he wants, and what's really good is that he, <clears throat> he is speaking to his brethren, right? To brothers. He's speaking to Christians. But really, this is true no matter who you are. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, whether, no matter what you believe, no matter where, this is a logical statement that everybody who can think to any degree would agree with once somebody passes away once somebody dies the law is no longer binding upon that person it's simple and it's obvious and this I, this is really important because i think this is what paul does here is this is how we should be engaging with other people right you see the reason that paul is talking about this in the first place is there are still so many people in his time and in the world we live in as well who believe that the law, the Old Testament law, was still binding them. They still had, they, there was still something there that, they, that, that if they were going to find righteousness, they had to do it on their own. Obedience is what gave them righteousness. And even though they had heard the message of Jesus, and even though Paul had come to their churches and spoke and written them letters and all of these things, and they had heard the opposite, they weren't able to let go of what, was, of what was before. And so even though Christ has died, they still believe that they had to do something. I've got, I've got it. Even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just half of 1%, I have got to do something in order to be made righteous. And Paul is fighting throughout the whole New Testament, in every church that he writes to, he is fighting tooth and nail to put this idea to death. It's no it's no longer true. And really, it wasn't even true in the Old Testament. People were striving towards it, but they weren't accomplishing it. The plan was always for Jesus to come and to be righteous and to be able to impart his righteousness onto us. And so he gives us this very clear, this very simple, and this very obvious statement. Now, once again, this is how we should be interacting with the world. We think about evangelism. I mean, how, I'm sure all of you have a desire to want to share Jesus with other people, but are oftentimes intimidated by that. Or I don't know how to do this. Or I don't know, what, I don't know exactly what I should be saying. Just, just let Paul be your example. 
When you meet somebody or you're speaking with somebody who is not a Christian, find common ground. Find a simple and obvious statement that you can agree with, that you can build on together. This is what he says to them. Think about, I mean, there's, there's lots of different things that we could do. You, you could come up with the idea, or I mean, you could, you, you could speak with somebody and say, look, we recognize that nobody is perfect. Like, wouldn't you agree with that? That's a simple and obvious statement that Christian and non-Christian alike, if they understand themselves at any level, they would agree with. Or maybe you could say, there are certain ideologies, there are certain worldviews that are better than others. Right? Some are wrong. All you have to do, there's not that, it's not that hard to find an example, right? We can think about, you can think back to World War II. Right? The Nazis were an evil regime in and through and through. There's nothing good, there's nothing redeemable about what they were doing. And you can go from there, right? You, you do what Paul is doing. You find groundwork that you can agree on and then you go from there. Well, why is it that the Nazis were bad? You see, our world says that everybody gets to decide what's right and wrong for themselves. And that's what most people outside of Christianity believe. This truth is relative. None of these, no, there is no real truth. Why is it bad? Why was, why was what they did bad? Why is murder evil? What standard are we judging these different ideologies on? If one is bad and one is good, who's making that judgment? Right? There's all of these things that we can then explore if we do what Paul is doing. We, we, we come to this, or we start with... Um, we start with a logical argument that we can all agree on. You see, we can expose the fallacy of our culture and what it puts forth, and we do it, and we have this example for us. We find this common ground, we build on it. And I will say this, at the end of the day, right, if all of that fails, because a lot of the times it will fail, right? because here's the thing, you're not going to argue somebody into the kingdom of God. Not going to happen. Right? You can, they can come at you with all, of their, with all of their stuff, right? with all of their objections to God. How is there evil in the world? And why would God create us and to, to have so much pain and suffering? And they just throw everything at you. And you can refute all of those things. And you can respond to all of those things. And at the end of the day, they can say, you know what? You're right and I'm wrong, which they'll never do. Right? But even if that were to happen, even if somebody were like, absolutely, I agree with everything that you're saying. I've had many, many people who I've had conversations with, and they would say, yes, I see what you're saying, I agree with what you're saying, but I still don't believe, right? Because we can't argue people into the kingdom of God without faith. They're not going to believe. And so we do all of this, and we argue, and this is good, and, and learning all of these things are good, but at the end of the day, we just have to share the gospel, right? We, we, can, we can tear down all of the walls, but at the end of the day, we share the gospel, we call people to repentance, um, and we let God sort out what's going to happen with them. It's, it's outside of our hands. So the, the argument, the, the way to argue is good, but don't let it be the thing that you put your hope in, I guess. So Paul puts forth this statement, right? He gives us this logical statement. Um, in order that he would come into agreement with those who say, well, they, they, they say they believe in Christ, but they are still holding on to the old ways of doing things. They still are... They, it's like they haven't been able to give that up. They're trying to hold on to their, their self-righteousness and following the law while also believing in Jesus. And so then Paul gives us this really interesting example. Verses 2 and 3, right? He says, For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, 
she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So he is trying to make a point here that when we die to the law, we are, it is a complete severance of our relationship with that. Now, once again, he gives us a very obvious truth. Nobody, and I mean, nobody who is thinking clearly would ever say, yes, I am still bound to the, to the spouse who died five years ago. Um, that's, not, that's not how we think. That's not how we understand the way that the world works. And so Paul is giving us this example. And I got to tell you, at first, when I was reading this and kind of studying, I thought, oh, interesting. It's an interesting example. It's really obvious. And I didn't really see a whole lot of, you know, things to explore. But then as I thought about it more and more, the simple truth, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really um, encouraging things, I think, to see and, and challenging things. And so the first thing is the obvious one. Your marriage is dissolved by death. Now, if you're here this morning, so this trip that Jennifer and I took, right, we've been married for 10 years. Um, and for, for many of you, you're thinking, oh, you're just getting started. Um, and that's to, to some degree true. But, it, but in, the, in a 10-year span, like, we have had our troubles and we have had our problems. And I would be lying to you if I didn't allow in my mind the thoughts and, and the, like, Maybe this is not the right thing to do. Like maybe, maybe we should separate from one, each other, one another. When things were at its darkest and when things were not going well for us, those were thoughts that I allowed to go into my mind. And I'm telling you this morning, this is, this is the truth of God, that your marriage is dissolved by death. If you're here this morning and you're allowing those kinds of thoughts into your mind, if they come in and you're being tempted by maybe divorce or adultery, or you're thinking that there's something better, or that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, I'm telling you right now, you have to put that to death. Don't allow it to fester. Don't allow it to gain any hold in your mind, in your life, because it is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Our marriages are only dissolved by death. Now, there are some nuances, right? We don't have time to go into all of the different things that God is not calling you. Wife, if you're in here and, you're, and your husband is abusing you, that doesn't mean that he's calling you. Well, you just better sit there and take it and let him beat you to the point where either he dies or you die. That's not what's happening, right? It doesn't mean that God is calling you that if, you're, if your spouse is unfaithful, that you, have, you just have to sit in that and find a way to love them, right? There are nuances to this. But the general truth is still here, that when we stand before God and our family and our friends and we make a covenant with our spouse and with God, that we are going to be married until death do us part. That is a serious, serious thing. And we have to fight for that. Just because you're both Christians doesn't mean, well, then I guess we're just both going to be happily married, blissfully married for the rest of our lives. These things have to be fought for. Men, especially, fight for your marriages. Lead your households. Do what God is calling you to do. Be the spiritual leader and support your wife and love her and be compassionate and be caring and kind and giving. Don't just say, well, she's not being kind to me, so I'm not going to be kind to her. Your marriage is dissolved by death alone. And I want to challenge every single one of you. Don't let any of the lies that would, that would refute that come into your mind. Don't let them stay. Second thing to see is that God is faithful to his promises. We have this really famous 
statement that Joshua makes when they're about to go into the promised land, um, it's been redone a hundred different ways at Hobby Lobby, right? Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a beautiful, wonderful statement. You see, what we have here in this example is that you have to make a choice as to whom you are going to serve. Are you going to serve the law or are you going to be united with Christ? And here's the thing. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, (coughs) yeah, I can do it. I'm going to serve the law. I'm going to stand on my own two feet under my own merit and I'm going to stand before the Lord. And and that's going to be the way that I that I get in to heaven, that that's what that my afterlife is relying upon my ability to do good, my ability to resist sin. See, God is is faithful to his promises. And one of his promises is that sin cannot go unpunished. If that's you this morning and you're thinking, yep, I've got this under control. Even one mistake, even one sin is you being unfaithful to God. And he will bring justice down on each one of us for the sins that we have committed. Now, this is why Jesus has come. Because you and I, when we try, because we've all been there. Even if you were saved as a young child, for a portion of your life, however long it was, if you were a Christian, there was a time in your life when that's what you were married to the law, right? This analogy falls in that that you you were married to that, like that was your relationship, that was your covenant relationship with God. God, I am going to be good enough to earn my way into heaven. And Jesus comes along and says, it's not possible. You can't do it. I mean, just think about it. You don't have to read all 600 plus laws. Just think about the Ten Commandments and think about how long you can, you can abide by just those. How many of you have already broke one of them today, right? We're not even halfway through. You spent the last hour here in the church building. If there was ever a place where you were going to resist all the temptations and all the sin in your life, probably it's here on a Sunday morning. And yet every single one of us, if we, if we take a deep dive, we recognize already today I've messed up. You can't stand on your own. It's not possible. None of us are capable of this. And so Jesus comes. And it's like the death of a spouse. That marriage that we had between us and the law is gone and dead when we believe in Jesus. But what's happening in the day of Paul is that many people, while they're believing in Jesus, they're still holding on to that. Yeah, but I know that Jesus came, but like, there's got to be something that I should be doing, right? There's got to be some, some little piece of righteousness that I can gain back from myself. And Paul says, no, it's like a death. This relationship is completely severed. It is completely over. Now you might be thinking, well, there aren't Christians who are still doing this. Here's the problem, is that every other world religion, the people who are in the building next door to us, the Jehovah's Witness, the Kingdom Hall that I drive past every day when I'm going to and from, every mosque around the world, every other religion in the world, this is exactly what they are teaching their people. Is that you have to follow a set of rules, and if you do that, then maybe, maybe possibly, you will be saved. We recognize that for what it is. It's a lie. It's a fallacy. God is faithful to us, 
in the way that we are faithful to him. And when we are incapable of being faithful in our own strength, we have Christ, who is 100% and perfectly righteous. And he gives us that righteousness. And so when God looks upon us as his bride, right, as this, this, the marriage to the law has been severed, it's done, it's over with, and now we're united with Christ, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus. He doesn't see your righteousness, which is worthless, my righteousness, which is worthless. He sees the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. And so this analogy is really, really helpful in understanding that what, that, what we used to be and what we are now, we can't have any holdover from that previous marriage to the law, but it has to be done, it has to be severed. One more thing. This analogy is rich. Um, it brings out one more thing to notice. For those who have lost the spouse, right, this thought of remarrying can be really hard to understand. If you spend 30, 40, 50 years married and then your spouse passes away, there's a lot of emotions that is very, and, and, and it happens in most people who experience this. Um, the thought, of, the thought of remarrying or being romantic with anybody else, it, brings, it even brings guilt to some people. They think, there's no way, I'm dishonoring the person. And all of this stuff is normal and it's real. And this is what it looks like for a spouse to, you know, for you to lose or, or for someone to lose their spouse. But the problem is, is that that same idea then carries over, I think, sometimes into our Christian life. We're, you see, we're tempted to want to return. And we even feel a little bit guilty because we recognize that even though we have become a Christian, sin is still running rampant sometimes in our life. We're still doing things on a regular basis, saying things and thinking things. We think, this is not honoring to God. This is not who Christ is. This is not what God wants me to be. Like, maybe I should be trying harder to be self-righteous. And there's a little bit of guilt that comes in. And this past relationship, this past understanding in the way we used to live, it tries to eke its way back in. I know a lot of people who still hold to the Old Testament law, not because they're trying to please God, but because they believe that there has to be some level of self-righteousness. And there are people who hold to the feast because they believe that this is part of, this should be a part of who we are. Feasting is not bad. In fact, it's good, right? The fact that we get together and we have potlucks and we feast and we fellowship together, this is a wonderful thing. But I mean, the there are lots of people who I know who are Messianic Jews, right, who, who have t- sort of tried to, con- to, to bring the two together, right? And they, they believe in Jesus, but they're also believing in the Old Testament law, and it's, and it's righteousness that comes through being obedient to that. And there's this weird conglomeration because we have a hard time accepting the fact that Christ does it all and that we do nothing, that we are incapable of being righteous on our own. And so this analogy brings forth a lot of things. Sorry, I said the last thing. There's one, there's one last thing. This one's the, really the last thing. Um, so I, I always want to be sensitive to the... There's, I, I am fully convinced of whatever, whatever label you want to put on it. Um, Calvinist, predestination, whatever, all of that, right? As I study my Bible and I read things, um, I, I'm convinced of, of that mindset, right? Of that God is choosing people and that we are not able to choose God, but that he is choosing us. 
And I recognize that when I read the Bible, I read it through that worldview. I read it through that lens. I'm seeing it all over the place. And I always want to be really careful to not insert it into the text when it doesn't belong. In fact, one of the most annoying things as a guy who believes in predestination is to hear other pastors who also believe in it and find a way to talk about it like every single week. They're like reading, I don't know, you know, the reading something that has absolutely nothing to do with it. And then it's inserted for the sake that if they, I guess if they feel like they don't mention it every week. John Calvin's going to come back from the grave and get him or something. I don't really know. I've known many, many pastors who just, they want to bring it up all the time. But I see it here, and I see it in a, really, in a real way that I, I, I felt like God was, was really strongly um, bringing it out. And I don't think I'm inserting it into the text. Um, I think it's here. I think it's, I think it's here in, in this analogy once again. And it's this. You see, he, he makes this comparison that the married woman loses her spouse, right? That that is not something that she chooses. This is, this is not, no, she was not asked. She, um, her opinion was not given. Like, God just takes a spouse, right? We don't get to make a choice in that. We don't have a say in it. We, we're not asked whether this is a good time for us to lose our spouse or not. It just happens. And then he compares that to the relationship that we had with the law. In other words, he compares it to being saved. And this idea that, the, that the, the, the woman or the man, whoever, that they lose their spouse and this is not something that they are given a choice about, God says, look, this is what salvation looks like. We are severed from the law. And I believe that God imparts faith on whom he will um, and that we are not given a choice about that, right? That God gives us faith and we are saved and we are yanked out of our old way of doing things. And this marriage that we have with the law is completely severed and we don't have a say in it. And so Paul tells us that in the same way that we have died to our sinfulness, that relationship is destroyed. He makes this comparison. And we are now in a covenant relationship with Christ. We are in this new marriage um, that has brought us life when the old brought us death. And so then this brings us to the last question, and this is what we see in four through the end. Why is this happening? Why is this new re- relationship a reality? So in four through the end, four through seven here, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. (coughs) So why has God done this? The old way was bringing about our death. The old way was us trying and trying over and over again without succeeding to to follow the law perfectly so that we could be self-righteous so that we could find righteousness in what we are doing and so god is saying look this doesn't it's not bringing you anywhere now we're going to see this in more detail right he doesn't get into this yet but it almost seems as if paul is blaming the law it's almost seeming as he as he is saying that the law is bad or that it is evil in some way because what it did is it brought out our sin and ultimately it led us into death Now, of course, that is not what Paul is saying. In fact, he's going to expound upon that in seven following, and so we'll see it next week. But it is the sinfulness of man, not the law itself, that was bad. So, for example, if you're driving down the road and you're speeding, 
Is it the speed limit sign's fault that you were speeding, or is it your own fault, right? We recognize, right, that all that the law does is it just exposes in our heart, oh, whoops, I'm speeding. Or you maybe don't say whoops, you're like, yeah, I know I'm speeding, right? I mean, but the idea is, is that the law is not to blame. You, the one with the foot on the gas pedal, you're the one to blame. The law is just exposing your sin. And that's the argument that Paul is making, or he will make. We'll see it next week. But that the law is not bad. In fact, it's from God. It is perfect, and it is holy. And what it does is it exposes our sin. And ultimately, the law leads us to death because we are sinful, not because the law is bad. We were slaves to trying to uphold something that, is in, that we were incapable of doing. Martin Luther knew this, right? Do you know what sort of led Martin Luther into the Reformation? What he would do for hours and hours and hours every single day. Confession. He would just, he, every little thing, every thought, every, he would, he noticed them all and he was self-aware of all of the sin in his life. And over and over again for hours he would spend in confession. Because he thought, I got to get this off of my chest. Like I've got to go to the priest and tell him these things so I can be absolved from my sin. And then as soon as he would walk out of the booth, he was back in it, right? Because what, what can you do? If you're trying to follow God's law perfectly under your own steam, it, you, that's your life. You will just be constantly confessing sin over and over and over all day long, every day. And Martin Luther realized this, is, this can't be. This can't be the life that God has called us to. And he goes back and he reads his Bible and he understands the gospel more fully. And the Protestant Reformation is born out of this because the Roman Catholic Church is telling the people, you ha this is what you have to do to be saved. You have to confess. You have to get your sins off. The priest is the only one who can absolve you. And he realizes this is not true. The law was bringing about his death, but the gospel of Jesus brings life. And so in this paragraph here, we see that Paul states it really quite clearly. We are dead to the law and we are united with Christ in order that we may bear fruit. Now, have you ever thought about what that means? Think about, I mean, this big tub of apples out here, right? Who's, who's enjoying that? Is the tree itself the one enjoying the apples? No, that's weird. That, that, that trees don't eat apples. It, that, that's not how it works. We are the ones who enjoy it. We are the ones who are, are enjoying the fruit that something else is bearing. And so when Paul tells us here, look, you, you get away from the law and you unite yourself with Christ so that you can bear fruit. What is that doing? It's enhancing the lives of everybody around you. It is enhancing your life, right? When you, on a regular basis, when you are living up and when you are producing the fruits of the Spirit, right? When you are being loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind, you're good and you're faithful and you're gentle and you're self-control, right? Those are the fruits of the Spirit. When you are doing all of that, your life is better. But how much better is the life of everyone around you at the same time? Think about 
if your spouse was being perfectly giving the fruits of the Spirit all the time, and you're just able to pluck those fruits, right, and you're able to enjoy them, and if you're doing that, how much happier are, are your, is your spouse going to be and the kids in your home, like if you're not yelling at them, but you're being gentle and you're being kind? And so the idea is that Paul is calling us to be the fruit tree, right, to produce those fruits so that everyone around us, so that the world around us, our lives, and all of the people whom we interact with, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, whatever, all of those people, are getting to enjoy that. This is what Paul is calling us to do. But more importantly than that, more importantly than the fact that that is making the world a better place, is that this is what God has commanded us to do. That when we are obedient to God's law and we are obedient to what Christ has called us to do, it brings joy to our Father who is in heaven. You see, it's okay to, to, to have the fruits of the Spirit Right, because we live in a world that actually values those things. They don't know why they value them. A lot the non Christian doesn't understand why they appreciate somebody who is kind and gentle versus someone who is rough and mean and gruff and angry. It's because this is what God created us to be. But even if we lived in a world where those things weren't, we even if we lived in a world where cruelty and violence were things that were praised and all the things that God has called us to, you see, we don't do these just so that we can make the people around us happy. We do these things because we make God happy when we are doing them, right? See, our obedience is not about us becoming righteous, but it is about us pleasing the Lord. That's what our obedience is for. And so when we have these fruits, God smiles down upon us. And this is what he means in this last verse, right, where he says that we are serving in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code you see what paul is saying is not that well then just get rid of it we should just cut the old testament out never look at the law don't care about it don't have to try and follow it we are trying to follow it every single day every single one of them that we can but the reason that we're doing it is so much different when we are in christ we're not doing it to try and gain righteousness we have all the righteousness we could ever need in jesus He's given it to us. You don't need any more, right? It's, you are perfectly righteous. You are perfectly justified in the sights of the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now we are obedient. Now we are, we are doing this in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way so that we can be pleasing to our Father. See, we're not earning our way into heaven, but we are pleasing God. And so go out. Live in this freedom. Don't let yourself be bound by the law, but be followers of the law so that God will be glorified in all that we do. All right, let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I, um, I pray for each one of us that we can fully embrace this message that we've seen this morning that we will give up this marriage to the law completely that we will be united with you and with christ and his righteousness lord the temptation is always there to try and strive we live in a world where you have to earn everything that you get that nothing comes for free and yet, when we look at your word, your salvation, at least to us, is free. We do nothing to earn it. We've done nothing 
to be worthy of it. So Lord, help us to take this to heart. Help us to understand where the law fits into our life in light of the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, it's important, but it's not what saves us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has come to be the salvation that we could never be for ourselves. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.